0: You probably wouldn't be floored by surprise if I told you there's been a huge shift in Middle Eastern geopolitics in the last couple of years, right? I mean, it's the Middle East after all. In the desert kibbutz once home to Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, the foreign ministers of Egypt, Bahrain, Morocco, and the UAE, along with the US Secretary of State, espoused friendship and shared goals. Countries are recalibrating their policies. The UAE and Bahrain, for example, they're calling for deeper relations with Israel, despite that little fact that Israel still occupies Palestine. 43 years ago,
1: when Egypt and Israel made peace, unfortunately, we lost those 43 years of knowing each other better, of working together, and of changing the narrative that many generations of Israelis and Arabs had been living.
0: That narrative became a reality after the signing of the Abraham Accords in 2020, which the Trump administration pushed. Hey guys, I'm Sammy Zaydan, and you're with Essential Middle East Podcast. So, you might say, is making peace a bad thing? Well, usually it isn't. But here's the thing. If countries make peace accords but leave people occupied and struggling for their freedom, then is it really peace they're making? Okay, obviously we're talking about the Palestinians who've rejected the Abraham Accords as an illusion. So what's making states change their positions and policies? Let's get some answers to that. From our guest.
1: I'm Joost Hilterman and I am the program director for the Middle East and North Africa at the International Crisis Group and I'm joining you today from Calabria in Italy.
0: Good to have you with us today Joost. So let's start with the obvious one. Have the Abraham Accords delivered peace in the Middle East? Of course not. I guess there was
1: an expectation on the part of some people that it would and certainly, the United Arab Emirates made it sound as if their agreeing to this accord with Israel would bring peace or would give them some leverage over the Palestinians that would bring the Palestinians back to the negotiating table. I'm not sure what, but we've seen absolutely no progress until now.
0: Yeah, I didn't think your answer was going to be yes to that one. But hey, sometimes you've got to ask the blindingly obvious, right?
1: Right. And again, there is a constituency out there that thinks that, in fact, this is a way to bring peace but this would not be a peace that would be just and durable. And so that would require an entirely different approach.
0: Let's talk a little bit about why the Palestinians are not on board with the Abraham Accords. Basically, it comes down to the fact that the Accords don't stipulate an end to occupation, right?
1: Well, that's for sure. It doesn't say anything about the Palestinian cause. And in fact, what the Accords did was to remove a major condition from the Arab approach to peace with Israel, which was that no one would normalize relations with Israel until and unless the Palestinians would have their state. And so now there is no Palestinian state, and yet some of these countries in the Middle East have made peace with Israel. So that leverage is gone.
0: Did the Trump administration officials really think they could end the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Without a Palestinian state, without an end to occupation? You know, I'm not present in their minds, but... True, true. But your best guess, I mean, because it is kind of surprising, right? I don't
1: know, because it is typical of a major power such as the United States. And in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Israel, which is so much stronger than the Palestinian side, to believe that they can impose... A certain resolution on a conflict and get away with it. It ignores, as always, and we've seen this in many other places in the world, nationalism and the resistance of a
0: people that feels oppressed. It cannot last. Now, I know what you're saying about the power of the US, but, I mean, the idea that Palestinians would just forget about their freedom if they were given enough money and investments, I mean, really? Well, I think that was the thinking. I find that also crazy, frankly.
1: You know, I've spent a lot of time in Palestinian society. I lived there for five years in the 1980s. I saw people rise up in the First Intifada. I was there briefly during the Second Intifada. I know that people will not accept the continuation of the occupation and will try to resist it at every turn. Um, But somehow um, that doesn't register in the capitals, where the belief is is that eventually, yes, the Palestinians can be bought off.
0: By normalizing relations with Israel, without insisting, as you said, on the establishment of a Palestinian state, without insisting on an end to the occupation, have Arab countries, practically speaking, given up on the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative?
1: Well, so the countries that made these deals with Israel seem to have given up on that, yes. Others have not or have not yet. Saudi Arabia we don't know, for example. But it's clear to me at least that on a popular level, which is very different from the regime level, the Palestinian issue is still very much alive. And we know that in authoritarian regimes people cannot speak freely. But, you know, mass protests, we've seen them erupt over other issues. But the Palestinian issue is alive, and when there are other reasons for rising up, this issue will come right back up as well.
0: So what's prompted this policy change among some of those Arab countries you mentioned? Is it the desire to confront Iran? Is that what's really going on here?
1: No, I think that is really the Israeli motivation, for better or for worse, They want to see an anti-Iranian alliance in the region, and they're very happy to work with Arab states that want to join them. And they found in the UAE and Bahrain, certainly two countries that are concerned about Iranian power projection in the region, no question about that. But I think the primary motive for a country such as the UAE is not so much to be part of an anti-Iran alliance, even though they can concede that point, they can be part of that.
0: Because that's the way the Israelis are presenting it, isn't it?
1: That is the way the Israelis are presenting it. Every day in the media, you can read, they see it as an anti-Iran alliance. And again, the UAE is not averse to that, but that's not their primary motivating factor, I would say. It is probably that they have all kinds of economic and security and intelligence benefits from an alliance with Israel. They're very far from the Palestinian issue, geographically, politically. So they think this is low cost for them and huge benefit.
0: All right, let's listen in now to what the Israeli foreign minister Yair Lapid said in Negev. I'm sure you remember that meeting with his Emirati, Bahraini, Moroccan and Egyptian counterparts. This new
1: architecture, the shared capabilities we are building, intimidates and deters our common enemies. First
0: and foremost, Iran and its proxies. So what do you make of that, Yost? He's talking about deterrence and intimidation. Are we in reality a step closer to war? That is difficult to say, because deterrence
1: is an essential aspect of preventing war. For example, the last war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon was in 2006. And since that time, 15 years ago, we've had real deterrence on that border, with both sides understanding that they can maintain this deterrence. Either side could decide to attack the other, but they don't want to, not at this stage. They could blunder into a conflict, but they have set their red lines and they're sort of known to the other side. And so they found a way to deter each other and to prevent another war. So this could happen also, in theory, between Iran and Israel, or between Iran and an Israeli-led coalition that the UAE and Bahrain in particular are part of.
0: But would the UAE and Bahrain really want to get involved in a military attack on Iran? Well,
1: they don't. And so deterrence might make sense for them. They don't want to get into a war. And I would argue that one reason why it is so important for the UAE to have this new alliance with Israel is to be in the room if and when Israeli commanders and political leaders decide that they should take aggressive action against Iran. Because the UAE would be one of the first collateral victims of any Iranian response
0: to Israel. Right, they're very close to Iran. Very close. Would they bear the financial brunt of an Israeli attack on Iran? You know, I think if there's going to be a war between
1: Israel and Iran, this would affect the world economy. So, of course, it would affect the UAE, but not just the UAE, because then Iran would close the Strait of Hormuz and there would be attacks on oil installations in Saudi Arabia, which we've already seen in 2019.
0: Shipping might suffer as well.
1: Shipping, everything, the price of oil would go sky high. This would affect everyone, not just the UAE.
0: What about the Iranians? Will they just sit back and allow this relationship to develop? Or will Tehran try and preempt it? Well, it's too late to preempt it. The
1: relationship is there. They could preempt a deepening of that relationship into the security field. What I think the Iranians are drawing a red line, though we don't know for sure, at Israeli military being present in the Persian Gulf. That is a red line for them. So if the UAE or Bahrain invite Israeli military, and I'm not talking about the Minister of Defense, but about active military to be present in the Gulf, that would be casus belli, a cause of war.
0: How do you think we're going to see the position of other Arab countries evolve? Will Saudi Arabia join, maybe, or others? So I think the UAE
1: in particular has very little concern about a popular backlash inside the country against its deal with Israel. I was there not so long ago, and it's clear that at a popular level, not everyone is in agreement with this deal
0: because of the Palestinian issue. People are not going to get mobilized over it.
1: They cannot. If they would, they can't. So I think for the UE it's okay. For Bahrain, it's a bit different because we've seen, of course, during the uprising in 2011, but also in previous cycles, that the population can rise up against this monarchy. And so this could happen again, and they need to be very careful about it. Saudi Arabia, they need to be very cautious because they have a large indigenous population and there are any number of other reasons for people eventually to rise up. Until now, the Saudi population didn't rise up in 2011, when people in other countries, Egypt, Tunisia, elsewhere, did. Why? Because there was enough money to go around to basically preempt any kind of popular uprising. But the economic crisis is coming, also in Saudi Arabia. So things may change,
0: you mean? Things may change, and the monarchy must worry about that. All right, where is the US in all of this? I mean, on the one hand, the Biden administration is supporting this Trump-era alliance, but on the other hand, it's pushing for a nuclear deal with Iran, which the alliance rejects. Yes. Well, I think, you know, for President Biden coming in, and
1: there was no way politically to reverse these peace deals. And why would it? In fact, the peace deals as such are positive for both sides and also for the United States.
0: Yeah, but isn't it leaving the U.S. in a kind of contradictory situation?
1: Not necessarily, because
0: you can make a nuclear deal with Iran, regardless
1: of these peace deals between the UE and others and Israel. So for the United States, you can silo this off and say, yes, you can have a peace. After all, Jordan and Egypt have had peace deals with Israel for decades. And that has not been a problem for Iran or for the United States to deal with Iran. I think these issues are separate.
0: All right, let's talk about some internal geopolitical struggles in the region. They kind of changed when the Trump administration came into power and then changed again when Biden won the White House. So is the UAE, what's been called Little Sparta, recalibrating its policies?
1: The UAE is, everybody is. We saw it the moment Biden had won the elections, everybody knows that US policy will change when a new president comes into power, especially from the opposite party. And especially after Trump, who was so unpredictable in many ways and polarizing in other ways. The UAE, like all other players, are trying to hedge their bets at all times because they know that the administration stays for four years, maybe eight, so they know that change will come. And I've seen evidence of that over and again. When, for example, the Trump administration was there, and leaders in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were meeting with, frankly, the American opposition in the Democratic Party as well, because they knew that these people might come back to power four years later.
0: Just how much weight does the UAE and Bahrain now have in the region without the backing of Jared Kushner, etc.? I mean, can they tip the balance of power in the region right now? So until now, the United
1: States is the protector of the Gulf Arab states. And that's true on the military field, and that's very difficult to reverse quickly. But because the United States, under whatever administration, the last four or five administrations, has shown itself to be gradually disengaging diplomatically, maybe militarily, though I wouldn't go that far yet, from the region, These countries and the UAE in the forefront have been recalibrating and have been trying to hedge the bets and say, we need to find other supports just in case. This is why the UAE went in bed with Israel.
0: Interesting. Can we say though that the UAE, Bahrain, some of these countries, are they really looking at Israel as the possible alternative security guarantor to replace the Americans? Until China is there. Because in the end,
1: they need a strong power, and that cannot be Israel. It has to be the United States or its successor. But until now, China, which is very active economically throughout the region, has not wanted to get involved politically, diplomatically, in any significant way. They're waiting for the United States to weaken itself in the region. Eventually, they will need to step up to the plate, but they haven't done so yet. So you can't rely on them until now.
0: So basically, what you're saying is this alliance is more about maintaining the security of regimes in the UAE and Bahrain and so on, rather than achieving peace between Israel and the Palestinians, right? Well, definitely. Again, the Palestinians are not
1: part of this equation from their perspective. They may mouth the words because they know that they need to talk to their publics and they know it sounds right because that's the international consensus. But in effect, that is not what they're seeking. The right-wing government in Israel or the coalition government in Israel is on record as not supporting a two-state solution. If it's a two-state, you mean a viable Palestinian state. Now they're talking about maybe a Palestinian entity as opposed to a state. For the UAE, there is absolutely no interest in what happens with the Palestinians. They're quite happy with the status quo when it comes to that.
0: All right, while we've got that crystal ball out... What future do you see for the Gulf and the wider MENA region then?
1: Well, for the duration of the Biden administration, if it's a four-year term, a one-term president, I think things will stay relatively quiet, though I should add that the one dynamic factor really is the Iran nuclear deal negotiations going on in Vienna. If the deal comes through and is revived, and the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal is revived, then I think there could be steps taken by sides to reduce tensions in the Gulf as well, through bilateral dialogues, a regional dialogue, something that my organization has been pushing for and we are not alone. But if the deal falls apart, so the negotiators in Vienna fail to revive the nuclear deal, then I can assure you that tensions will rise in the region. Even during the Biden administration, of course, and then all bets are off. Then it would take an incident somewhere that could spark something bigger. And the real challenge would be to contain it and if there are no real channels of communication between the key enemies, it will be difficult to contain the
0: escalations. That is one scary crystal ball. I think we're going to put it away for now. But Yoast, this has been absolutely fabulous. Thanks so much for your analysis. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Sunny. A big thanks to our listeners too for joining us. Let me give some credits to the people behind the scenes. Our producers Hayat Mongodin and Khaled Sultan. And George Alwir, of course, he takes care of sound design. A shout out to our lead engagement producer, Ayel Malik, and assistant engagement producer Munira Dosari. We can't forget the big boss, of course, our executive producer, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. We'll chat again next week.